Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Job. Job, starting at the end of chapter 6. Job 6, starting in verse 24, as Job is responding to Eliphaz. Job says this, Teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Has not man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him any more. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. This is the word of the Lord. Why does Jesus teach us to pray, lead us not into temptation? Some would say, well, God doesn't actually lead us into temptation. (laughs) Job would beg to differ. Job's friends see what's happening to Job, and they conclude that, uh, actually, Eliphaz will initially say, oh, this is the common lot of mankind. Everybody suffers. And Job says, "Uh uh-huh, no, no, no. All my kids died in one day. All my wealth gone in one day. My health destroyed in one day. 
and you're telling me this is the common lot of humanity. No, no, no. God has painted a target on my back. So yeah, there's a reason why we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because God had asked Satan a couple chapters earlier, have you considered my servant Job? Painting a target on Job's back. There is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. The story of Job reminds us that, yes, there are times when God will lead you into temptation. But the story of Job also reminds us that just because God leads us there does not mean that he will abandon you there forever. Indeed, our psalm of response is Psalm 88. There's a way in which Psalm 88 is a, something of an extended meditation on Job's problem. Haman the Ezraite says that he is cut off from the hand of God, that it is God who has put him in the depths of the pit. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. The conclusion of Psalm 88 says, Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. There's a way in which Psalm 88 is that language of from my youth. This is I mean, Job's problem was it's a, it's a relatively short period of time. All happens at once. Psalm 88 reflects on, you might say, the the chronic illness, the, the long-term suffering, the enduring affliction being led into temptation over periods of years and of decades. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness, or perhaps darkness has become my only companion. There's only one line of hope in the whole psalm, the opening line. O Lord, God of my salvation. Psalm 88 cries out from the pit. Only two things I know is that you have put me here and you are the one who will deliver me from here. Have you ever known a Psalm 88 time in your life? Maybe it's right now. Psalm 88 reminds you that, yes, even believers, even the most faithful of Christians, will have days, weeks, months, years like this. Job, after all, is one of the few whom God calls my servant. He sa God says of Job, he is blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. But Job lived here for a long time. And of course, our Lord Jesus had a day like this as well. Our New Testament lesson comes from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, hear now the word of our God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, 
How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of our God. How do you pray in the midst of temptation? Now, I might need to back up on that and ask, what is temptation? We, we oftentimes think of temptation simply in terms of sort of that moment where the, 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 the thing that is desired is sort of before our minds, and we think, ah, oh, that's temptation. Scripture uses the term temptation far more broadly. So, for instance, illness, disease, any sort of affliction is a temptation. It, it, is, a, it is a test. It is a, it is a time of where... It is a lot easier, you may have noticed, to fall into sin when you're feeling weak. It's a lot easier because the, the weaknesses, the sufferings, the afflictions, whether of body or of, of, of mind or of heart, our afflictions weaken us. And we are more open to suggestion, as it were, in those times. If you think about Job, the temptations that Job was led into was because of the death of his children because of his loss of everything he owned, because of his own disease and illness, he is now susceptible to the temptation to deny God, to reject him. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we are, we are praying, and all of us are, are praying this in the midst of temptation. All of us are already there, you might say. We are already in a place where we are weak, we are frail. We are 
susceptible, as it were. So we always pray this prayer from the context of, that's where I am. There, there are very few moments in the human life where you are strong and everything's going well, and although even that can be a temptation. Because then you're tempted to say, I don't need God. That's one of the, what's one of the great temptations in Deuteronomy. Sort of, if you think that by my, by my wealth, by my strength, by my power, I have obtained this, beware, you forget the Lord your God. Our larger catechism helps us think through this petition because the sixth petition, which is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In this prayer, we acknowledge that the most wise, righteous, and gracious God for diverse, holy, and just ends may so order things that we may be assaulted, foiled, and for a time led captive by temptations. And yes, as Psalm 88 and as Job agree, it is God who has led us to this place. God does not seek to ensnare us. That's not his purpose for leading us here. No, it is, it is the world, the flesh, and the devil, the, the next line in the catechism, that Satan, the world, and the flesh are ready and powerfully to draw us aside and ensnare us. Many have pointed out that the word for evil in the Lord's Prayer could very well be translated the evil one. So is Jesus teaching us to pray to be delivered from evil, generally, or from the evil one, particularly? I suspect that Jesus himself would kind of shake his head at the question because that's why he chose the word he did. You can take it either way. And it's important to take it both ways. In fact, that's what the catechism does. If you just think of evil in a generic, impersonal sense, you're missing part of the point. In the same way, if you just think of evil in terms of, oh, it's the devil, you're also missing part of the point. People sometimes think that the, the, the demonic is this just this weird, bizarre stuff out there. Satan would love for you to think that. Because then you won't notice that it's him with the internet porn. You won't realize that it's, it's him with that headache, that chronic pain that he uses to wear you down. Satan, the world, and the flesh are ready powerfully to draw us aside and ensnare us. It's not just in those weird, bizarre things that you hear about from other countries. It's here, too. It's everywhere. Satan is is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Why? And it's not like he only does that in some places, not in other places. It's not like he, he can only use weird, bizarre things. He can't use ordinary things. We need to beware of that there is an enemy who is trying to ensnare us, who is actively working to draw us aside. So notice, God leads us there. But it's, it's Satan, it's the world, the which doesn't, which means the sort of the powers and sort of ways of thinking of our culture around us, and our own flesh, that are ready powerfully to draw us aside. God asked Satan, "Have you considered my servant Job?" And yes, God painted a target on Job, thereby saying, "Okay, Satan, you want to go after him? Just try it." 
But Satan's the one who tries to ensnare him, who tries to pull him away. God is not seeking to pull Job away from himself. No, that's Satan who does that. But we cannot blame God for our problems. We also can't blame the devil. It's not, it's not like, oh, uh, I couldn't help it. As our catechism goes on to say, it's not just those forces out there, but it's also that we, even after the pardon of our sins, even after we're Christians, by reason of our corruption, by reason of our weakness, by reason of our, our lack of watchfulness, are not only subject to be tempted and forward, you know, we're, we're, we're moving in a direction to expose ourselves to temptations, but also of ourselves we are unable and unwilling to resist them or to recover out of them and to improve them. Uh, the, that word improve is one that, you know, if, if you think about when you have a piece of property, you put improvements on the property, you build on it in the same way. With temptation, with anything in, in life that God sends, you're, we are called to improve it. That God gives us these situations, he, he sends us these, these occasions in order for us to build on them, to become stronger and better in what he calls us to be. So what do we pray for when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Now, notice that, the, again, the catechism uses the same triumvirate of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We pray that God would so overrule the world and all in it, subdue the flesh, me, and restrain Satan, order all things, bestow and bless all means of grace, and quicken us, enliven us to watchfulness in the use of them, that we and all his people, remember, the Lord's Prayer is, is a corporate prayer. That we and all his people may, by his providence, be kept from being tempted to sin, or, if tempted, that by his Spirit we may be powerfully supported and enabled to stand in the hour of temptation, or when fallen. It's, it's, this prayer is not just for, you know, sort of before the fact. It's even for after the fact. When you've sinned. It's not too late to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us into evil, deliver us from evil. Because that it, when fallen, that we be raised again and recovered out of it and have a sanctified use and improvement thereof, that our sanctification and salvation may be perfected. Satan trodden under our feet and we fully freed from sin, temptation, and all evil forever. Now, there's a way in which our, our passage in Job 7 is, is reflecting on this and is the, really the foundation for what the catechism is talking about. Job's friends don't like this idea that God might lead us into temptation. That's why Eliphaz in chapters 4 and 5 suggests, ah, oh, this is just common wrath. Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. The sun shines on the righteous and the wicked alike. The storm destroys the homes of the righteous and the wicked as well. And besides, compared to God, what is man? Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? This is what Eliphaz was asking. Eliphaz is granting at the opening that maybe Job is innocent, but trouble is the common lot of man. Oh. As you find in the book of Job, 
It's hard to find where Job's friends are wrong in general. They make very good theological points all the way through. Job's friends are only wrong in the particular when they try to take their general theological truths and apply them to Job. Everything Eliphaz says is true in general. There is such a thing as common wrath. God does do, you know, know, when an earthquake comes and, and levels a city, it's not like the homes of the righteous are the ones still standing and the homes of the wicked are the ones that fall down. That's not what happens. Diabetes, cancer, heart attacks, these don't single out wicked people. They hit everybody. Common wrath is an important thing to, know, to, to realize because sometimes people think that God is picking on them when, in fact, they are experiencing the common lot of humanity. But sometimes God is picking on you. If you look at Job, in a single day, he lost all his worldly possessions and all ten of his children in four separate actions in a single day. Rightly, does Job say at the beginning of chapter 6, the terrors of God are arrayed against me. Well, does he ask, why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? And he says in chapter 6, verse 9, oh, that it would please God to crush me. Now, Eliphaz had said a couple times that how people are crushed by the events of life. Job now says, oh, that it would please God to crush me. Now, when you think about who Job is, how God has said, this is my servant Job, the one who does right, turns away from evil. And now Job says that, oh, would God crush me? In Isaiah 53, it says that the servant of the Lord was crushed for our iniquities, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, I'm not saying that Job knew about this yet. What I am saying is that God put the book of Job and the book of Isaiah together in the Bible so that you'd see this connection. Job is a picture of the innocent suffering servant, the one who endures the wrath and curse of God, the one who's, who, 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 who says... Oh, that God would crush me. (laughs) Because that's what Jesus will come and do. God's whole point is that it is only through the suffering of his innocent servant that God will bring comfort to the human race. I realize when you hear that God will sometimes lead you into temptation that you're sort of like, oh, really? What happens if he doesn't? What happens... If God never led anyone into temptation, well then, in Matthew chapter 4, God would not have led Jesus into temptation. When it says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, God led his only begotten son into temptation in order that he might triumph over it and bring us life. You see, if If God never leads anyone into temptation, then there will never be salvation for the human race. So I realize, in the meantime, this is, it's hard. But what is God doing in your temptation? 
He is conforming you to the likeness of Jesus. Just like he did with Job. With Job, he was conforming him to the likeness of Jesus before Jesus came. With you, God is conforming you to the likeness of Jesus and making you to share in the life of his son. Now, Job, in one sense, knows all the right answers. He knows that the Lord is his help and deliverer. But the Lord is now the one pursuing him. The Lord is the one who's painted this target on him. So what do you do when the one who is supposed to be your strength and wisdom is the one who's attacking you? Well, at least you can rely on your friends, right? Well, unless you're Job. Job says, I'm parched with thirst in the wilderness looking for water, and you, my friends and brothers, came to bring comfort, to bring cool water for my parched lips, but instead you turn against me. Job tells them, none of this is my fault. The cause of my calamity is God. If you would show loyalty, chesed, faithfulness to me, then you would either show me my fault or join my side. And that's where in chapter 7, as Job is already beginning to give up on his friends, and he turns from, from addressing them, and he turns to God. Why? If he's debating with his friends, why does he turn to God? <laughs> because he's beginning to realize they got nothing to say to him. Where else can Job turn? This is what Peter says when Jesus asks, are you going to leave me? Jesus, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Like Haman the Ezraite in Psalm 88. Like Job, like Peter, when we are in the midst of affliction, when we don't see any way out, our hearts need to keep turning back to God and say, Lord, you are the God who saves me. You have the words of eternal life. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's where Job goes in chapter 7. As he laments over the misery and the, and the difficulty of his life. My nights are as toilsome as my days. I, I have no rest. You ever had nights like that? Where do I go when my days end without hope? I go to God, even though he's the one who put me here. I mean, this is where Job, in all, I mean, at the end of the book, God's going to say that Job has spoken rightly of him. So if you want to know, how do I talk to God when I'm in this situation where it's like, okay, you put me here and I'm, I'm coming to you, how do I talk to God? This is not a moment when some, you know, oh, how I love Jesus. That's not usually what you're going to be singing at that moment. That's why we sang Psalm 88 earlier. Go to Psalm 88 in those moments. Go to Job. God says that Job gets it right. So you, so you can trust Job that when he speaks to God, did you hear his complaint? Did you hear, I mean, this is where I, I love good complainers. God loves good complainers. Complaining is an important... If you think about it, if you've, you know, any, if you've been in the business world at all, if, if, you have a, if you have a job, if you have a work site, where nobody ever complains, that's a bad situation. Yeah. Presumably something's going wrong here and there, but nobody ever complains. 
Now, our problem is we have lots of grumblers in the world. We have, there are lots of people who will grumble. They'll, they'll talk to each other about problems, but they'll never bring a complaint to somebody who can do something about it. You see, that's the point of a complaint. A complaint is brought to somebody who is in a position to do something about the problem where you say, hey, there's a problem we, and we want to deal with this. Complaints are a good thing. I, I love the fact that I mean, so many, so many people in this congregation have become such good complainers. I mean, I, I, there were, there were in the in just the spring, there was like six or eight people who came to me with with a complaint, saying, "Hey, this is there's a problem here." Excellent, good. I mean, because right, there are problems here. Have you ever been in the church that didn't have problems? There are problems here, of course. So let's. So, but that's where what Job does is he brings complaints to God and says, there's a problem here. And he pours out his soul. In verse 11, he says, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. We're going to, three three of us are going down to to general assembly, four of us. We'll be, be, you know, general assembly, uh, there's a bunch of complaints that have been brought to to, to the assembly. We have a whole chapter in our book of church order on complaints. There's no chapter on grumbling. Grumbling is where you sort of, that's, that's the, all the, the backbiting and the sort of the, that's, grumbling doesn't help, but complaints do. And so when Job has no place else to go, he goes to God and says, remember my life is a breath. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. Notice that for usually when we think of the eyes of the Lord are on his people, his eyes are on the sparrow and I know he watches me. When Job is thinking about God's eyes right now, he's like, God's eyes are not being, are not very helpful, not very comforting right now. God, if God is the one pursuing me, if God is the one who is attacking me, the sooner he looks away, the better. Have you had moments when you were like, okay, God, you're... But Job pours out his soul before the Lord, and he comes and brings his complaint. And he, in in verse 12, Job asks God, am I the sea or or a sea monster? Back in chapter 3, Job had had raised the specter of, of Leviathan, this great ancient sea monster, Wondering if perhaps this great ancient sea monster might be able to come back and, and reverse history and go back and blot out the night of Job's conception. Then I never would have been born. I never would have gone through all this. And so, could, could Leviathan have done this? But now, Job asks God, Am I Leviathan? That you treat me like I'm a threat to you? In the ancient world, Leviathan was a, was a sea monster that would fight the gods. So the, the picture of Leviathan in the ancient world was that of, of a threat to the gods. Now, of course, in Scripture, God makes clear that, no, 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 I created Leviathan. Like, that's what God will say later in the book of Job. But he's, why are you hunting me like you would hunt a sea monster? And, well, Job's friends have proven comfortless, not even sleep provides comfort. Verse 13, when I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. 
I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. Job says to God, leave me alone. The presence of God sometimes becomes a dreadful thing. Job understands that if if God is against me, (laughs) I mean, it's... We have here the opposite of Romans 8. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? For Job, if God is against me, (laughs) I'm done for. Why are you keeping me alive? Obviously, your point is to destroy me. Why not just finish the job? You ever felt that? I see no way out. Just put me out of my misery. Now, if, if, that, if that doesn't turn everything on its head that you've ever heard, Job goes on in verses 17 and 18 to turn Psalm 8 upside down. Psalm 8, 4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Verses 17 and 18 are a bitter parody of that. What is man that you make so much of him? And that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning, and test him every moment. If you think about all the different ways in which God may come, may visit, this is a visitation of judgment, a visitation, this terrifying nightmare that Job is living through. But Job portrays himself here as, as a representative of all mankind. What is man that you make so much of him? How long will you not look away from me or leave me alone till I swallow my spit? Not the most polite of phrases, but perfectly clear. I cannot take your relentless pursuit of me. All I'm asking is, will you just give me enough time to swallow my spit? And... In verses 20 and 21, Job brings up the question of sin. And he's, if I sin, what do I do to you? Why don't you pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Job isn't aware of how he sinned, but he's like, hey, if I've sinned, then deal with my sin. For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Again, inverting the normal pattern. Because normally it's man who seeks God, but now Job says that God will seek Job. But because Job is a breath, he will die, and God will seek Job in vain. Now remember, God says at the end of the book that Job has spoken rightly. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? Now, God will, at the end of the story, visit Job with peace and blessing. And while Hebrews 2 is quoting Psalm 8 rather than Job 7, as we read through Hebrews 2 earlier, may have heard the emphasis on suffering. I would suggest that Hebrews 2, sure, it's quoting Psalm 8, but it's also drawing in Job. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to Jesus. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, 
so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, but deliver us from evil, because Jesus himself has passed through the sufferings of Job. This is where we now get to see far more clearly than Job ever did that the innocent suffering servant has come. Jesus has taken our flesh. He has borne our suffering. He has taken upon himself our sin, our misery, our death in order that he might bring us to himself. Job could only stumble dimly toward this. But Hebrews says, we now see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And you might say, Pastor, how do I see Jesus? Show me Jesus. How do you see Jesus? By faith. By faith, believing that God is faithful to his promise, that he has done what he promised that he would do. It's why we confess the creed every week. As we confess that we believe that God has done what he promised, that he sent Jesus. We see him sitting at the right hand of the Father, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering he endured. And he has promised to bring us through suffering to life. You see, there's no other way to glory. There's no other way to the right hand of the Father except the way of the cross, except the way of Jesus. It's why he leads us into temptation, so that he might deliver us from evil, from the evil one, from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and bring us to himself. So let us pray. Father, we, we ask that you would so overrule the world and all in it, that you would subdue the flesh, that you would restrain Satan, that you would order all things you would bestow and bless all the means of grace and, and quicken us, enliven us in the watchfulness, to watchfulness in the use of them. That, that we and all your people may by your providence be kept from being tempted to sin or when we are tempted, that by your spirit we might be powerfully supported and enabled to stand in the hour of temptation. And when we have fallen, that you would raise us again and recover us out of it, that we might have a sanctified use, that we might be able to improve upon these things, that we might build and grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Son, that our sanctification, that our salvation may be perfected, that Satan may be trodden under our feet, that we might be fully freed from sin, temptation, and all evil forever in the kingdom of your beloved Son. For we pray in his name. Amen. Singing number 209 in your Trinity Psalter hymnals, number 200.